Once upon a time, in a land far away. I'm Katrina, and I'm Jeff, and welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat while we retell you a thing. Happy winter holidays, everyone in the Northern Hemisphere. And happy almost summertime to everybody on the other side. Yeah. It is once again a wintry holiday season, which is kind of wild to me. I feel like we were just recording last year's holiday special. I'm still not over what an absolutely baller episode our last winter special was it was episode 83 for people who don't know a very devil Christmas special, which featured a Christmas tale from the Ukraine that I think is my absolutely favorite Christmas tale in the world. Move over a Christmas Carol. It's time for the devil and a witch to team up to make a full comedy of errors. (laughs) Yeah. It was like a total farce. Yep. I absolutely loved it. It was so. it was it was a tale that was a a literary folk tale that has become kind of like a very well known story. There was a musical, I can't remember, I think it was an opera called Christmas Eve, which is the title of the story, Christmas Eve, because it all takes place on Christmas Eve, much like a Christmas carol. <laughs> <laughs> Except in this tale. It's based on a lot of like folk tales from the region that this the author, I want to say his name was like Nikolai Gogol, G-O-G-O-L. He wanted to kind of like capture the tales from where his mother had grown up and like where he had been raised. He wanted to capture those by turning a lot of like the folk tales into more literary works. And in this story, the devil is upset with, oddly enough, the witch's son, because the witch's son was a very, like, like Christian artist. <laughs> and the devil was mad at him because he had, like, made a mural or something depicting people, I don't know, beating the devil with sticks. And he was upset about it. So he was like, you know what I'm going to do this holiday season? I'm going to ruin this guy's life. And then just, like, a f- <laughs> full bumbling comedy of errors and it was delightful it is and you should listen to it and make it a new yuletide tradition of yours yep come come children gather around and hear the tale of the devil who tried to ruin christmas and we're not talking about the grinch (laughs) no especially because like i love that everybody in the town all the men in the town were like taking turns hooking up with like the witch but uh, she like didn't have time for all of them that busy Christmas Eve, so she just shoved them into sacks. <laughs> I love to spoilers, well, I, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to spoil it any further, but it's pretty funny too. That whole like series of being shoved into sacks to be hidden from like the next guy that comes along. It's good stuff. Like, give it a listen. Yeah, and definitely like a great. <laughs> A great winter episode really gets you in the mood for, (laughs) puts you in a good holiday cheer. 
But this year, we have another winter slash Christmas episode that we're excited about. Christmas plants and lore. Our last live event that we did was about different trees and plant lore, and people loved it. Which I was going to say it surprised me, but at the same time, I love plant lore, and everyone listening to this podcast is also a nerd for lore. <laughs> so so I don't know what I expected. But I guess I thought that people were going to be like, ew, citrus stories, disgusting. <laughs> but no, people loved it. And so... In light of that, I thought that I might present to you today Christmas slash winter plant lore. What better present could we give our audience then? What does that want? More, More plant lore. Yeah. I assume everybody who listens to our podcast out there is a plant mom, has a bunch of ferns and stuff around their house and that they just like to walk around in, in water and mumble to the plants. No shame in that plant-loving game. <laughs> so it is, it's definitely a misnomer to call it Christmas plant lore because these tales and beliefs in the tree spirits definitely predated Christianity in the area, but they've been wrapped into how people celebrate Christmas today, which makes them Christmas plant stories, even if they could be better described as Yuletide plant stories. But also... Most people are more familiar with the term Christmas than they are with Yule. And the stories themselves aren't necessarily based on any Christianity or any religious celebration specifically. They're just stories about the plants that we think about a lot at Christmas time, which could also be called Yule. But right. people, so people who don't, even people who don't celebrate Christmas are more familiar with the term Christmas than they are with Yule. So to make it yeah. easier. No, I, I know what you're saying. Christmas plant stories. These are Christmas plant stories in the same way that Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Yes. Absolutely. That's what she's trying to say. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Thank you for making it easier for people. That's <laughs> what I'm here for. Relate it to Die Hard. That's... You know our, our audience, our demographic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so whether you're joining us from a country that doesn't have wintertime or a culture that doesn't celebrate Christmas, I'm hoping that this episode is still fun for you today. So the most well-known plants are the ones that are mysterious for the way that they provide greenery through the winter months. So things like holly and mistletoe and some types of ivy. So we're going to start by talking about mistletoe. I want to start off by saying that when we're talking about something like Christmas in 2023 and like what we have around that like wintertime stuff, especially like European countries, is that all of the cultural symbols have been traveling and merging and communicating with each other through centuries. <laughs> They've been mixing and mingling. So in the exact same way that all year we were talking about things like apples and the visual of apples, how we think of like apples, 
it's the exact same with a lot of these symbols. And mistletoe is one of those because I'm going to be telling a story in a little bit from Norse mythology that involves mistletoe, but probably is not why we view mistletoe the way that we do. But we'll get to that story in a second because first we need to talk about Saturnalia. Yes. So this is a festival celebrated by the ancient Romans that I think has become more well-known recently as more like neo-pagans talk about the ancient roots of different Hmm. things, different holidays, like different symbols and stuff. But I do want to say for the sake of like clarity, not a whole lot is known about the festival and practices from ancient times. But what we do know from the limited sources that were recorded with a little bit of detail about some of the festivals and festivities, those have really taken hold in the imagination of people today. So basically all of the most hedonistic parts that have been written about the festival are what people really like latch onto, which I get it. So Saturn was the god of light and growth and agriculture. And during the time leading up to the winter solstice, which is Yule, which is December 21st, there's less and less light. That's why it's the winter solstice, (laughs) because it's the longest night before, you know, the light starts returning, the days start getting longer. So the idea around the festival is that, you know, the light is dying and something, some ritual needs to be done to bring forth more light, has to bring the light back into the world. And it's hard to tell like how seriously at the time people took that or whether, you know, it was, it was symbolic and not like something they literally believed. Oh no, if we don't do this festival, then Mm -hmm. it's the end of the world time. And so, yeah, they didn't necessarily believe, Oh, if we don't do a big party, (laughs) then the light's going to plunge into cold darkness. But this was a time of like revelry where basically everything that had been done for the year that could be done in terms of like preparation for like winter had already taken place. So it was like time to have a good time. So celebrating, partying, lighting bonfires, libations of alcohol. It was really like carnivalesque celebration, reversal of roles type of thing. Like a lot, a lot of really fun behavior, a behavior that we would be familiar with that cultures throughout throughout the world that cultures throughout the world and throughout time would recognize as a good time as a good time because yeah i'm like because a lot of the times people say oh saturnalia some of the things that happen in it are exactly the same as at christmas but i'm like they're also exactly the same as like how aztec ceremonies would also go down Mm mm-hmm Because, like, alcohol, sex, feasting, even sacrifices of gladiators, which we don't do at Christmas time anymore. (laughs) Like. I miss those days. Yeah. My youth. (laughs) 
those, which just now my brain was like, oh, do they play football on uh, Christmas? Modern day gladiators. So, but anyway, those type of, that type of behavior, it's like, it's, it's not, it wasn't unique to the Romans. (laughs) But since Saturn was this like god of fertility, the ideas are kind of like, if you want the land to be fertile in the coming year, if you want your cattle to be fertile in the coming year, then you have to celebrate your own fertility, your own youth and sexiness. So mm. Saturnalia sounds like a good time, to be sure. Absolutely. No problem there. So I can see why in the popular imagination, it's a festival that people want to latch onto in the modern day, especially if you want to celebrate something around Christmas time and you aren't a religious person. Mm-hmm. I get it. Like, there's a reason why it resonates, why some of these things resonate with people today, why it is being talked about more and like, yeah, by the public. And I'm not here to stop people from having your fun. So start some Saturnalia traditions in your home if you want to. Just please be aware that it isn't as much of an ancient, unbroken practice as some people make it sound like it is. And and we don't fully understand the history of the rituals, how people celebrated and how they conceptualized and theologized about this practice. And so if somebody tries to tell you like, oh, this is how like it was done and this is, we actually don't know like a whole lot. There weren't a whole lot of records. Just like recording everything of how people practiced it, what all the rituals entailed, like that kind of stuff. But we do know that it did happen. And one of those symbols of fertility was mistletoe. Mm. So it was not well understood how the mistletoe at the time was growing. The word mistletoe actually means dung twig. So like poop stick, which, which I love that. Come and meet me under the poop stick and we can have a little kiss. (laughs) Seems a lot less romantic now. It does, it does. So it was believed that poop, specifically like bird poop, kind of played a role in the growth of mistletoe. But it was unclear to them like how the poop was creating mistletoe. And so it was kind of seen that this plant seemed to sort of like spontaneously regenerate Mm. onto other plants. So... It was a symbol of fertility. We know very well now how this is happening. In case people don't know, I will explain. This is a botany podcast, as we've said many times. Oh, yeah. As everybody here well knows, this is a botany podcast. So mistletoe is a parasitic plant. It has these delicious white berries. Two birds. Two birds, they are delicious. (laughs) Do not eat mistletoe it will make you sick and it could kill you in large amounts like apparently every single part of the plant is like poisonous to people it will make you sick the the sticks the leaves the berries like so the the berries are delicious to to birds and usually to like specific birds in the united states you will often see phenopeplas flying near juniper trees (laughs) Ah, oh, yes. Oh, the Fina Yeah, I can picture a Fina Peppola just <laughs> vividly in my mind right now. As I'm sure our listeners can as well. <laughs> also, good luck spelling that word. 
It's like, it's, I couldn't. So they'll be sitting on juniper trees because junipers also have delicious berries. And so when the birds will be on the juniper eating the juniper berries, they'll be pooping out mistletoe berries from other plants. So a lot of junipers in the United States, especially the region that I live in, a lot of juniper trees also have mistletoe growth on them because Mm. it's a parasitic plant. And so, yeah, when these birds would eat the berries, the seeds will pass through them and the birds will eventually poop them out, hence poop stick, (laughs) dung dung twig, (laughs) onto these other plants. And the seeds themselves are very sticky, so they don't actually have to be pooped out. Even if the berry just gets opened and like a seed gets like wiped from like the bird's beak onto a tree or like it gets stepped Mm -hmm. on and brushed, like it's very sticky. Some mistletoe berries, how they're designed is to explode and they shoot out suddenly with such force that the berries will like shrapnel spatter like onto other plants and they'll hold on to the bark and they'll start to grow. Um, Mistletoe, the leaves are green because they do make their own chlorophyll, but they also take chlorophyll from the plant that they're on. And usually if too much mistletoe grows on a plant, it will end up killing the host plant. But also if the host plant gets a disease from like something else, the mistletoe will die. The mistletoe is reliant on the plant. Mm. So in the wintertime, you would have these trees that had lost their leaves, but it had weird spots where you would see mistletoe leaves still green with these white berries on them. And so they were seen as this symbol of fertility, something that was like mysteriously green when it was cold out and like growing spontaneously, so it seemed, from another plant. So mistletoe also became a symbol of peace between people and uniting, which I thought I think is interesting just because it's a parasitic plant. (laughs) I mean, but people could say, oh, well, but, you know, they could peacefully coexist together, even though one of them is benefiting and the other one is not. Neither here nor there. So it was seen as this plant that was uh, like a a plant of peace. And in Rome, when treaties between two groups that have been fighting with each other were being signed, they would do it under a mistletoe. So symbolically kind of say like, hey, we're going to have this like peaceful coexistence with each other. Even though, again, I do think that's funny because it's a parasitic plant and it's like kind of saying like well one of us is going to benefit and the other one's going to provide that benefit and i'll try not to kill you so there's like that association with mistletoe and saturnalia fertility and all that but also at the same time there is a famous mistletoe story in Norse mythology. And I was actually thinking about this tale the other day because I was watching the new Loki season two. Mm. Have you have you watched it at all? No. There was just this like one moment where they were like on what 
in the show is called like the sacred timeline. And Loki looks over at like some decorations, some depictions from Norse mythology that somebody had created. And it was three different people, like three different gods from like the Norse pantheon. And it was Odin, Thor, and then Balder. And Loki was like, Balder, who cares about Balder? Which I thought was hilarious because of this story. I have no idea if they were making like a, like whether that was supposed to be like an Easter egg for something that went on in the comic books. I have no Mm -hmm. idea, but from a Norse mythology standpoint, it was super funny because of the story that I'm about to tell you. So much like how I was explaining about the Roman rituals around Saturnalia and how we have not a very clear picture of how that was practiced. I also want to remind people, we've said this before about Norse mythology, all of the information that we have today about Norse mythology was being written down by a Christian after Christianity had kind of already gone throughout the region. And so we don't know before, I think it's like the 13th century, what the Norse mythology pantheon, like what that stuff looked like and sounded like in that time. And so there's like kind of like varying stories about this event in the like Norse mythology. And we don't fully know what it was like, you know, back in like the year 100 CE. So, so I'm going to tell you the story about Baldir. In this story, we have Odin and we have Frigg and Odin and Frigg are married to each other. their husband and wife. And they have in this story, the two sons that are most important are Hode and Baldir. So Hold and Baldir, these brothers were very, very beloved. So Hode, he was blind, but he was extremely strong. And he was a, person who was kind of like I would kind of say oh like a gentle giant except he wasn't a giant because in the Norse pantheon they have giants and that's like an entirely different race (laughs) but he was this guy that was like big and he was very quiet kind of would hold back like his opinion he was more apt to like sit and listen to others and he was the god of darkness that settles in winter which I think that's like so beautiful, like to have like a God of specific, like the darkness that settles in winter anyway. And people loved him, thought that he was amazing just because like he was a kind, gentle person while some of the other characters in the North Norse pantheon were like very like loud and rough and abrasive. Like think Thor, Mm. who was just like constantly like, Columping, columping around and like beating everything like with a hammer and like just, you know, a, a lot more abrasive. Hode was this very like calm, quiet guy. And his brother, 
Baldir was, it was interesting because like he's said to be kind of like the complete opposite of his brother, but even more well-loved because he was kind of this more like ethereal almost character where he was just like, he was fun and friendly and airy and light and just like a breath of sunshine, you know, while his brother was like the God of darkness that settles in winter. Mm -hmm. Like he was just like the springtime sun coming to like lighten up everything, give like hope to other people, just like a really wonderful guy to be around. And so both of these brothers were very well loved, except for there was one person that found them annoying and didn't like how everybody liked them. Loki. Yeah. <laughs> Loki was like, I cannot stand these guys. They're so annoying to me. Just because, yeah, they were really well liked and he was not well liked at all because like, he, was, he was kind of a, a jerk all the time. He was constantly like, trying to ruin everybody's good time. So he, I was about to say low key, he did not like them. <laughs> it's like, no, confusing language. So yeah, he just, he wasn't a huge fan of them. And so that was just kind of bubbling and boiling in the background. Meanwhile, in different versions of the story, different people received this premonition. In some versions of the story, Odin was having dreams and visions into the future, which he often did. That was one thing that all father was like known for his being able to like see into the future of like things that were going to happen. But he could see that his son Baldir was going to die. And he, you know, was really concerned about this. And in other stories, it was Baldir himself that, was like having these dreams and went to his mother Frigg and told her that he was having these dreams that he was going to die and he didn't know what they meant. And obviously either way, Frigg, whether her husband Odin had told her or her son told her about these premonitions, she also was concerned about them. In some versions of the story, she goes around and like asks for basically a second opinion from like different seers what was going to mm -hmm. happen. But it basically was like, no, it's fated to be. And what's fated to be is fated to be. You can't change this from happening. Where have we heard <laughs> that before? It's so fascinating how <laughs> like that is kind of like the, the world theme of like humans one way or another have to grapple with the fact that like you can't always stop something from happening that you want to happen or you can't see into the future to prevent like all bad things from happening which that's hard that sucks we want to be in control and we can't but frigg decided that she was going to take as much in her control as she possibly could and so this mother went around to everything to ask for it to like to get promises like bargain with all of these things that they would promise not to hurt her child and so she went to you know like fire and water and metals and stones and trees diseases be like she went around to as many things as she possibly could 
to get them to promise not to hurt her kid. And all of them were like, well, we love him. Why would we hurt him? Like, we're not going to do that. Of course, we're going to promise. Mm-hmm. Baldiers, he's such like a wonderful, he's he's everybody's favorite. He's this golden boy. Like, everybody <laughs> loves him. So they all promised that they wouldn't hurt him. And the one thing that she forgot to ask, the ankle that didn't get dipped into the river sticks, if you will, she forgot to ask Mistletoe not to hurt her son. Oh, no. And meanwhile, after she had gone around and asked everybody, you know, to promise, like, not to hurt her kid, you know, she came back, told everybody, okay, I handled it. Nothing can hurt him now. He's going to be fine because I asked everything to, like, leave him alone. So it should be good. And so someone, it doesn't, we don't know who, decided that they were going to test to see if he could be harmed. And somebody picked up, like, a rock and, like, threw it at him. <laughs> and it, without hurting him at all, just, like, bounced off of him. So then everybody thought it was, like, a really fun game. To like start chucking stuff at Baldier to be like, oh, I wonder if this will hurt him. But no matter what they threw at him, like it would just like bounce off of him and like leave him unharmed. So they were all having a really good time. So in some versions of the story, Loki dresses up as an old woman and goes to Frigg and is like, Oh, I was seeing a bunch of people throwing stones at a poor boy. And Frigg was like, oh, no, no, no. That's my son. He's fine. Like, they're they're not hurting him. He's not being stoned. Like, he's fine. There's nothing that can harm him. Like, I asked everything for permission not to harm him. And old lady Loki was like, oh, you asked everybody? And she was like, well, I think I asked everybody. Maybe. And then she remembered. That she hadn't talked to Mistletoe, but she thought to herself, oh, that's it's probably not a problem. It's just like, it's Mistletoe. What are the chances? What are the chances that it's going to hurt everybody? But she accidentally said it out loud to Loki. Oh. Loki went and found some Mistletoe, and he sharpened the stick into a dart. And then he went to Hode while everybody was laughing and having good time throwing stuff at Baldir and it's just bouncing off. And he handed Hode the mistletoe dart and to this like blind but incredibly strong man was like, you should try to throw this at him and see what happens. And Hode with the help of Loki aiming him in the right direction. It's kind of like, in my mind, I'm thinking of the, (laughs) it's probably horrible to say, the like pin the tail on the donkey type of like situation (laughs) where it's like you spin somebody around and then you like just, you try to aim them in the right direction and you're like, well, we'll see what happens. hope for the best. Yeah. See if the poop stick finds its mark. (laughs) And so Hode threw the mistletoe dart and it struck Baldir and killed him immediately. Aww. And this brother who had always loved his brother, always done good by his brother, he was led into killing his, his 
best bud, his favorite brother in like the whole wide world. And obviously everybody was super, super upset about it. And Frigg, she was like, we have to do something. We have to do something. Somebody needs to go down to hell. H-E-L, who is a person. It's actually Lo- like Loki's daughter. Hmm. Um, but Frigg was like, somebody needs to go down to hell and ask her what she would want to give Baldir back to us because hell was the God of the dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think we can all figure out how we ended up with the word hell in our own lexicon. <laughs> we, we can all mentally get there, I think, but it should be known that like hell, it's like kind of the, the, her realm was kind of the same as, uh, like kind of like the Greek idea of there being like, or not even just like the Greek, like where it's just a place where the dead reside. It's not a ca- mm-hmm. it's not a category of like Baldir the wonderful and sweet didn't get sent down to Christian hell. That's not the situation. So anyway, Frigg was like, we need to send somebody down to hell and ask her what she would be willing to trade to get Baldir back. And so another person who has not been in the story so far, his name's like Hermod. And I think he's one of their brothers as well. He got sent to go and ask. And when he asked Hell, you know, what they could do to like get him back, she said, well, if he's so well loved, then if everybody in the cosmos cries for him, Every single person, I will give him back. But if there's mm. anybody who is not going to cry about him being gone, I'm going to keep him here. Even one heartless trickster god Loki that doesn't cry. Oh, man. What's interesting is it was like everybody everybody in the story, like in the cosmos, cries for him, except for one giantess who it is believed it was just Loki in disguise as like a giantess. Her name was Thok, T-H-O-K-K. Thok with two Ks. (laughs) (laughs) She's got that BBL. (laughs) That's how you know it was Loki in disguise. But for real. He would. Mm. So... Since not everybody cried, Hell kept Baldir. And the story, the story like goes on from there where Odin, he is really upset and he wants somebody to take revenge on the person who killed Baldir, which he said was Hode because he was the one that threw the dart. Mm-hmm. And oh, but going back to like mistletoe, it was said that after mistletoe had like hit Baldir, Frigg standing over Balder, like she started crying and her tears became the white berries that are on mistletoe. Hmm. And that that also the reason why it is a symbol for peace is, and this is where I personally wonder how much of what symbolically from other regions has affected this 
ending for this story that already had mistletoe that mm-hmm. because people were hearing this story that involved mistletoe and what they already knew culturally from other areas about mistletoe. Right. How much of it influenced the other? It's a chicken and an egg situation, if you will. <laughs> of like, we kind of don't know what spontaneously was like independently symbolically already overlapped with the two. Uh But it was said that like forever after that mistletoe was supposed to be a symbol of peace because mistletoe did not ever want to cause a rift in a family, two brothers to fight against brothers, like Mm. people to be like warring against each other. And so it was seen as like a symbol of peace. So that's the mistletoe part of it. But just so that people know kind of like what goes on a bit after that. Odin wants Hode to be punished because he was the one that threw the dart. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Frigg. Makes sense. But I'm like, wait, no, but it's not his fault. Exactly. So. Please, no. So Hode or Frigg didn't want her other son yeah. To get it's like ki- yeah. What what in what way could we compound this tragedy that has befallen our family? But to further, because you know Hode was like feeling super bad about it. He didn't want to oh, kill yeah. Baldir. You know, it's yeah. like if he had known what the what would have happened, which he had no reason to believe that it would yeah. have been like dangerous. It's not like you know if I handed like a little kid a rock and I was like, hey, throw this rock, giant rock, at that person's head. It's like. I know that that could probably hurt this person. It was like, they were watching this guy get bean with all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And it's like, oh, no, 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 he's fine. He can't get hurt by it. So it was like, oh, like, there was no reason to yeah, sus- question. To suspect, yeah. And so this kind of, like, weird thing happens where what Odin decides to do is to sleep with this giantess woman who within one day gives birth to a child who then grows also to adulthood in like a day and then kills Hode. So it's like Odin made it so that nobody in the family killed the guy by making more family. Because I'm like, technically he is in the right. family because it's his his the son. Brother? Yeah. Now his stepbrother killed like him. Half brother. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But. His half brother killed him. Anyway, so now you have these two brothers that are now dead, and everybody is upset and it is usually like at this point that everybody's mad at loki everything is bad fair enough yeah and loki gets captured i mean there are a few stories of of giving different reasons what was the final straw that made people be like we're done with loki Mm -hmm. but this one is a very popular one because it is seen as kind of like one of the most egregious things that he does because like it's one thing when he thought it was funny to like go and in a story cut off all of thor's wife's hair Mm -hmm. and he's like that's funny and it's not but it's not as bad as like having a brother murder another brother yeah tricking a brother into murdering his own brother that he loves very much. Yeah, like that's just sick. So a lot of people see that as like, that story as like, oh, that was the last straw for Loki. And so it was at this point that kind of like this big chase scene ensues where Loki is like change, like shape-shifting to try to get away from all these people. and But eventually he's captured 
and he's chained up under the world tree and mm. there is a snake which i think i think the snake is also one of his sons that he had but i i might be mistaken but anyway so this giant snake is hovering above him for eternity dripping poison onto him and so loki's wife is holding a bowl like over loki's face to stop the acid poison like the venom from the snake from landing on loki mm-hmm. but every now and then you know the bowl gets filled up with the venom and she has to go dump it and in the meantime that will drip onto Loki's face. And when that happens, the earth trembles, which is really interesting because Mm. that area of the world is part of the giant, like what's considered like ring of fire. It's like along some of the same fault lines and stuff is like, well, cause like Iceland was part of that Norse area. And so there's a lot of like seismic activity, earthquakes, volcanoes, stuff like that. And so like it was said like, oh, every time that that trembling happens, it's because Loki is shaking from the pain of this oh, snake's acid, like snake falling on his face. Snake venom burning his face off. Yeah. But that was like a little mistletoe story of like how like this, this little thing can <laughs> cause like so much like calamity. Um, I don't know about you, but. There's nothing that gets me more into the holiday spirit than fratricide. (laughs) You know what? Accidental fratricide. I think a lot of people can resonate with, you know, problematic family dilemmas during the holidays. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, geez. But I thought it was really interesting because it's like that is one of the most well-known mistletoe like stories that often uh-huh. gets, I, again, I feel like it gets kind of like back dated, like back, like related to mm. how we view mistletoe today. And it's seen as like, oh, and that's why, you know, mistletoe is like a pagan symbol from this area. And it's interesting because like sometimes different communities will like kind of take stuff from like all over the place and kind of claim this like kind of unified religious symbolism when it was just kind of like, you know, like pieced, pieced together. There's a lot of like religious stuff like that. We're not going to get into this story today, but another Christmas plant that more recently is a Christmas plant is the poinsettias. And that's that's another kind of example of like kind of adding to the lore as you go along, <laughs> like like at, like adding tradition, adding yeah. other stories that like relate. But I wanted us to switch to our next holiday plant. And this one, I feel like I feel like people think of it less than like mistletoe or holly or other things as like holiday plants. Even though during our winter divinations episode, this plant played a very key role and it's popped up in numerous episodes that we have had. And that is the apple. So a lot of apples get harvested at the end of the summer season right the beginning of fall there's a lot of processing of apples 
apples will keep really well in like cold cellars over the mm. winter so that you can have like a pretty much a fresh fruit or they can they dry really well they can be turned into ciders into sauces like apples are a very very useful fruit to have in like cold climates and they were often seen as a like a divination plant that we talked about in our divinations episode but also apple trees especially the oldest apple tree on a plot of land was seen as a nature spirit that could be helpful. So in the same way that in past episodes, we've talked about like Tomta or other little like house spirits where they were believed to be either the spirits of homesteading Fae or people who were kind of like the first person to die on the property then becomes like the house spirit. The, the oldest apple tree on the property was seen as a nature spirit that could help the fertility of the land. And I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to let Jeff tell the story before I talk about the information that kind of like goes with it. But this is a story that I found in a book called Botanical Folktales of Britain and Ireland. And I will try to put a link to it because it's a book that was first published in 2018. And so it's like pretty accessible for people to get to. I'm sure there's probably mm. like a Kindle version too. And what's really interesting in this book is that they go kind of around like the, the wheel of the year where it's like Yule and bulk Beltane. And so for people who are like, into like kind of like pagan holidays, especially from this one region of like Britain and Ireland. This would be a really interesting book for them to check out if they want to. So this story is called The Apple Tree Man. And this story was first collected in Somerset by folklorist Ruth Tongue in the 1920s. All right. So this one also is about... A couple of sons. Because in this tale, there was an old farmer who had two sons. The elder son was very hardworking. He was thoughtful in his words and deeds. He loved nature. He loved the land. He loved having a good life out on the, you know, on the farm, living that life. And it says, his pockets never jangled with coins, but he never really minded about that. So it's like, from that point, I know this is supposed to be like this one is from like England somewhere or whatever, but it gave me real Sam Elliott vibes is like the narrator reading this. So I heard it in like a very like calm and slow, somewhat like Southern Sam Elliott. Oh yeah. Yeah. His pockets never really jangled coins, but he was never really minded about that. The younger son, however, was very different. He was a spoiled and greedy son of a gun. And he expected everything to be done the way he wanted to go. And he didn't really care about what other people had to say and had very little honor about him, it says. And so, as you can imagine, these two brothers did not really get along. One year, the old man, the old farmer, died. And in this 
part of the country, there was the tradition that the youngest son was the one that got all the inheritance. They got the house, they got all the stuff in it, the land, the animals. So this younger son, who, as we've learned in the previous paragraph, was a spoiled and greedy son of a gun, started making like a big thing about like, here I am giving out, you know, pieces of the land and all this stuff to my family, which was kind of nice of him. But he also, it says, delighted in the power to make his elder brother feel small and worthless. And so he was giving his older brother like all the worn out old stuff that nobody wanted. The old moth-eared donkey, an ox that had gone all to skeleton and sores, and a tumble-down old shack and outhouse with a scant bit of grass, and two or three groaning old ancient apple trees nearby. And that, those few apple trees were all that remained of you know, this orchard that used to be where their father had made quite the living with their grandfather. But the cottage on that land was only rented to the other brother. He didn't even give it to him. And the younger one made sure that he went and he collected his rent in full right on time every single month. So it wasn't the best situation for the other brother, but he didn't complain about it. He just like took what he had and he rolled up his sleeves and got to work. And so he was going out there and it says cutting grass for the animals. And it goes on to like, probably as a, is appropriate in a book that's all about like botanical stories, yeah. names the different plants, ash, elm, holly, and ivy. And then he gathers gentler herbs from the springtime hedgerow, such as clover, goosegrass, fingers and thumbs. There's a note somewhere that talks about what fingers and thumbs is. Uh, fingers and thumbs, it's a local Somerset name for bird's foot trefoil, which is also called bird's eye and eggs and bacon. Yeah, I'm like, I think it's like a, a three leaf. Like the the leaf looks like the footprint of uh-huh. like a bird, a bird is why it's like called like bird's feet or <laughs> Yeah, it's, makes yeah. sense. So he was gathering up his stuff and he was making sure that there was enough for the animals to eat. That's what he was doing. And so as he's taking good care of these poor discarded old animals, they started to fatten up and, and start to get some of their health and shine back. And so this older brother got some advice from a local wise woman whom he had sought out and he got a few other things he got some burdock comfrey and nettle to mash them into a poultice so that he could put on the ox's sores to help him heal up and he also was saying the right words as he did so mm-hmm. so like doing a little, a little doing a little, little spell bit of a, work a spell to help his ox heal up and so the ox did heal got better and started walking smart and strong it says I like the little inclusion of like the like wise woman that he's like, yeah. he's like, oh, how can I make the most of this? I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll talk to some wise woman first. And this is one of my favorite parts of the story. We heard he's collecting all this grass and all these herbs for the animals to eat. So they got this good stuff going through him. He's getting these other special herbs to treat their sores. And then he turns these beasts loose into the orchard with the old apple trees. And it says that all the goodness and herb magic came out the other end of the animals. <laughs> And treated the land, and the gnarly old apple trees flourished a marvel. So basically, went out, and these magical herbs were then also fertilizing the apple orchard, or what remained of it, these three old trees. And the trees also started getting like healthy and again, yeah. flourishing. And and isn't that like such a a good lesson about how like you know what's waste for you can be compost for somebody else. And yeah, it is like. Like in the same way that this brother got these cast off things, cast off land, all this stuff, he took that and made the best of the situation as he could with yeah. it. So it's like what may not seem like such a great thing can turn into something great if you, you know, 
see the potential yeah. in it and nurture it to be so. Or even like the lesson of when you start kind of like fixing up one area of your life, it starts to uh -huh. like affect like other systems, like where people are yeah. like, oh, how can me like, you know, going and doing yoga or like doing a meditative practice every day, how can that actually help my life? And it's like, well, but if you feel healthier in the mind or you're giving yourself time to like relax and de-stress, like it's going to affect like other areas of your life. If you're like, oh, I'm gonna go out on like a walk every day or I'm gonna learn how to knit or like just like any little kind of like tweak in your life mm -hmm. that you're like, oh, I just wanna add this little thing into my life. It affects other systems that go through your yeah. life. And so, hey, if you're out there, this is your sign to pick something in the new year that, you know, you don't necessarily intend to change your whole life or like the whole system, but just like one thing that you think is going to bring you joy just to just to be doing it. Yeah, and that's that's what could be the start of what the old upward spiral, <laughs> something I've heard about, but seem to have yet... <laughs> To have experienced. Uh, I usually spiral in the other direction. But anyway, maybe in this new year, I could kick off an old upward spiral for myself. And so also, these trees, they started getting better. So as these trees started to like come back to health, the farmer noticed that they were also kind of struggling under the weight of mistletoe, mm -hmm. this parasitic plant that was not letting them be as healthy as they could be. So what he did was he cut off a lot of this good mistletoe and went and sold it at the marketplace the following winter. And he also carefully was pruning the apple trees and he knew that it would take years to get them back into shape where they'd start producing fruit. So none of this effort, even though he's making these great improvements, which here is some more, you know, like we're, if we want to continue this metaphor about trying to start your upward spiral, it's not helping him in that immediate term, like get his rent together that he could pay his brother back with. Because he's like doing things, things are getting better, but it's like he's making these apple trees better, but they're not gonna produce fruit for several years. Yeah. So he's not making money off of that. He made some money off of the mistletoe. So life started getting more and more difficult. So in addition to doing his stuff on his little farm there, he started doing work at the farm next door, but that didn't really bring him in much. And so by the end of the second year, he had used all of his savings and he was barely scraping enough money for rent and food. And so one day, the younger brother, that greedy, no good son of a gun, came along to visit his older brother at his home for the first time since their father had passed away. And he said, hey, you know what? It'll be Christmas Eve soon. And you know what they say? That Animals can talk at midnight on Christmas Eve. And I heard some stories. I've heard tell down the village, that's what it says, that there's treasure around here somewhere. And you know what? I'm going to ask your donkey when he can talk. Because for whatever reason, this brother was like, he seems like he's got more brains than the other one, which I guess he's saying the ox. So it's like just between these two like beaten down old animals. He's like, the donkey seems like the smarter of the two. And so... <laughs> and he's basically like, it's funny too, because it's talking about how like the donkey and the ox are like within earshot. And the, the younger brother's like, he'll know that he has to tell me the truth if he knows what's good for him, because I'm the owner of this here place. Yeah, donkeys says, really respect that. 
<laughs> yeah. The donkey and the ox both stopped munching on their hay and eyed him suspiciously, but he didn't notice. And I'm just imagining these like animals like stopping chewing and like giving this guy the side yeah, eyes. Yeah, just be like, right, buddy. So the younger brother, you know, in a playful manner, starts poking the older brother in the ribs and he's like, well, actually it says, a little more than playfully. It's like, it's going to be your lucky Christmas because if you come up to the big house where the older brother, li- the younger brother lives and wake me before midnight on Christmas Eve so I can come and listen to these animals, I'll take a sixpence off your rent for the month of January. <laughs> but if you don't wake me, then you know what? I might just find myself a new tenant. You understand? So he's like threatening. And Not it says, the best brother. he walked off. <laughs> and he walked off whistling a little tune. It's like, what a jerk. So, that Christmas. says was a soggy affair that year. And by the time the sun had gone down on this Christmas Eve and the celebrations were supposed to be starting, the constant rain that had been going on this soggy Christmas season had soaked all the cheer out of the older brother, it said. And on Christmas Eve, he was determined to do something about it. Something to cheer his, lift his spirits. Man, that like upward spiral metaphor really just keeps on going. Yeah. He's like feeling crappy. I'm going to do something about it. So he goes out to the shed and he gives the, the donkey and the ox a little bit of extra food. And he opens the cupboard of his kitchen. And what does he pull out but the last bit of the year's cider? And so he starts mulling the cider over, you know, kitchen fire, puts in some cinnamon, some clove. He pours it into a mug and he takes it out with him into the orchard. And at this time, it's still like pouring down rain and super cold. And uh, it's saying that the water soon ran in rivers down the elder brother's neck and into his raggedy shirt. But despite that, he went up to the biggest of the ancient old apple trees and he pulled out this hard crust of bread from his pocket, dunked it in the cider, and he put that soaked bread in the crook of one of the tree branches and started to sing. And he sang the following tune. Old apple tree, I wassail thee, and hoping that will bear, for the lady knows where we shall be till apples come next year. And he tipped out the last of the cider at the roots of the tree, pouring some out for the homies, the (laughs) apple homies, and continues to sing. For to bear well and to bloom well, so merry let us be. Let every man take off his hat and shout to the old apple tree. Hats full, caps full, three bushel bags full, and a girt heap under the stairs. Hooray. And it says so uh, pitifully that this last cheer came from the elder brother's mouth, sounding so small in the cold rain that he didn't have the heart to cheer anymore. This kind of like gave up the last of his cheer to the this old. I was like, this is one of like the saddest scenes, like to just to like imagine that he's like, this is his last cider that he has for the year. His brother just came to his house and was like, um. If your animals don't talk to me, I'm going to like <laughs> kick you out of the house. Like he's just like, yeah. Well, I've done all that I can do. I'm going to honor the spirits of this land as basically my last hurrah. Yeah. And so he stood there. It kept on raining, and he was just staring there at the apple tree. It's cracked bark awkward branches covered in these globs of mistletoe and he was wondering just how long that this tree had been growing there and all the things that it must have seen on this old farm and then he heard a voice a dry cracked voice that said ah that were a good drop of good (laughs) 
And the elder brother looked around and he was like, freaking out. He's like, he was sure that there's no one else in the orchard. So he looked back at the apple tree and watched as the cracks in the trunk started to like gnarl themselves around into this huge barky grin with two knots in the wood for beady, pippy eyes. Oh my goodness. And I loved like the, the apple tree man's dialogue. So the apple tree says, come on now, you took a look under this didicky root of ours. There'd be treasure right over there. And he waved his branches over towards the middle of the orchard. And so the other brother wasted no time in grabbing a shovel and digging up the spot that the apple tree man had pointed to. And it wasn't long that he was digging that his shovel hit metal. And he brought up a box, a metal box full of shining gold coins. And the apple tree man says, it's yours and no one else's. So put it away safe and be quiet about it. And so the others, elder brother's like, uh, yes, yes, sir, apple tree man, sir. <laughs> and he takes the metal box into a sack and takes it up into a shack and hides it away in the kitchen cupboard. And then afterwards, he returned to the apple tree and he said his thanks. So like, not only did he do this kind thing to bring the last of his cider to the apple tree, when the apple tree told him where the treasure was, he took that, did what he was supposed to do, and he came back to thank the apple tree for helping him. And the apple tree man said, "'Tis a pleasure. Now go and call your dear brother. It's almost midnight." So it's like reminding him of like, hey, if you don't call your brother, it's going to be, you know, he's going to be upset. So the elder brother went up to the younger brother's house to wake him up. And after he woke the brother up to tell him that it was almost midnight and, hey, you want to go talk to animals or whatever, do that took the sack of gold and a few of his belongings and started up the road to seek out a new life for himself. Meanwhile, the bleary-eyed younger brother who'd just been woken up about before midnight on Christmas Eve went through the pouring rain up to the orchard and into the old cattle shed. And just as the clock of the church struck midnight, he stood close to the faces of the donkey and the ox and he looked at them, expectantly, teeth clattering from the cold and the rain, he says. And he's just staring, waiting for them to say something. And sure enough, after some time had gone by, the donkey turned to the ox and said, And you thought I was an asshole. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> uh, so the donkey turned to the ox and said, Look at this greedy fool over here listening to us so rudely. He's like, he wants to tell him where the treasure is. And the ox replies, Yeah, and that's why he's never going to get it, because someone took it already. The end. The end. That story, like, I absolutely was not expecting... I thought that he, as he was like fattening up the animals, I thought that the animals were going to like be like, since you've been so kind to us, we've decided that. Yeah. I also was kind of hoping at the end that he would take them with him. Yeah, I was kind of, but it's like the. the, We'd be missing the punchline. Yeah. Yeah, we'd be missing the punchline and kind of like the whole thing of like the, the. the younger brother was waiting to hear the animal. Like he would need to have hear them talk, but it's like the brother had to be gone by then because like the brother had the treasure. So it is like kind of sad that the animals do get left behind. But. So a couple things in regards to this story. Have you ever heard the belief that Christmas at midnight, the animals will be able to talk? I feel like at one point on this podcast we talked about something that happened like special on midnight on christmas eve and it wasn't like santa coming down the chimney or anything like that. <laughs> i feel like we heard something on the podcast about like we've talked about it before but i'm not sure like yeah. something in my brain like 
jingled a little bit of a bell, but I would have no idea. Like, it didn't seem like, oh, yeah, of course, everyone knows what the animals talk at yeah. midnight on Christmas Eve. So last year, one of the things that we talked about was that Yule is, and then what then got moved to, because that's the 21st, then what got moved to Christmas Eve is that this is kind of the last opportunity for, like, witches and stuff to be out um like Mm. moving about so that might be what's like jingling in your brain maybe so this animal speaking at midnight on christmas day some people think that this comes from the the bible that on the night that like christ was born the animals that were there when he was born Mm mm-hmm were somehow then like gifted this like ability to speak, even though if anybody opens up their Bible right now to like look up that that story is not in the Bible. Like though none of the animals in the stable in the story in the Bible, they do not talk. Yeah. If your cast is an animal in the nativity play, it's it's not a speaking part. It's not part. a speaking part. They did not trust you to speak. That's why they were that's that's why you are sheep number three. <laughs> but like so this belief that like like oh animals can talk for a while like people were saying like oh where did that start oh it must have started because in the bible on christmas when jesus was born it was a miracle and this but more likely where that idea of like animals being able to like speak on this night in winter is from Saturnalia. Because during Saturnalia, a lot of the roles for everybody was reversed. The things that makes it like carnivalesque. So a lot of the roles become reversed during Saturnalia where you have people. And this is, you know, when I said like it was carnivalesque, there's this idea of selecting like the king of Saturnalia, which was usually like a peasant person or a slave in a lot of households you would invite all the people who worked in the house to sit down and have like a big meal and they would be served by the people of the house and so there's this idea of like role reversal and Mm -hmm. that included like animals would be able to talk where you couldn't get them to plow a field or go and do what you say or whatever because for that day they, which normally this is around the time when like there weren't animals in the field. This is winter time. Um, and so people weren't getting their animals to work anyway. The animals were just mooching, you know, they weren't pulling their weight mm-hmm. in like anyway. And so there are some people who think that like this idea that during this time of year at midnight, animals will be able to speak, that there'll be this kind of like reversal where like humans have to listen and animals get to talk and like people's jobs, like, you know, kind of get flip-flopped in this carnivalesque like kind of way. So interesting. So yeah, I thought that was really interesting that, you know, that this light idea of like animals being able to speak on Christmas Eve, like I, yeah, I thought that was a really interesting like tie into what we were already talking about. So the main point of retelling that tale, besides the fact, obviously, that like apples and <laughs> we're talking about trees, is the idea of wassailing apple trees. Some people, especially if we have like European listeners, might be familiar with like 
I mean, they probably are also familiar with like wassling the apple trees, but more so like wassling two people. So if anybody knows the song, I'm like, I'll pull it up. Here we come, a wassling. Na, 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 yeah, I'm like, na, let me, I like, because I'm like, I know I have the word somewhere, like on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so people might know the song that's. Here we come, a wassailing among the leaves so green. Here we come, a wandering so fair to be seen. Love and joy come to you, and to you your wassail too. And God bless you and send you a- Yes, we all get it. So what I think is interesting is like in the U.S., we do not have this a cultural lot around wassailing. I'm wondering if they have it more in like the the East Coast. I don't know. I'm not from this country. <laughs> but it, it doesn't seem like something that people do. I don't think so. I lived in like New England. Oh, I guess that's true. For a time. <laughs> and I do not recall anything of the sort. I do remember like, I feel like, you know, the drinking of hot apple cider. Yes. Like at home, like making that or like at parties and houses and stuff like that, that was more of a thing. But maybe that's also just because I was like a kid. Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, but it's like wassailing. No, I don't I don't recall it as a yeah. thing at so all. So last year in the tale that we the tale that we were telling, we talked about people who would go around singing carols and getting like food stuffs, like getting little pieces of cheese or little pieces of meat or whatever. And so it was just like a fun little thing. Wassailing very similar to that, where you are going around like door to door with some like Spiced cider, sometime with a little bit of alcohol in it for uh, a little extra spice. Extra spice. Going around to like different houses and giving people a sip of your wassail in exchange for like again, sometimes like little pieces of meat, little pieces of cheese, like crackers, whatever, and then you'd keep going. And it was basically just like a fun community event that people would be doing to kind of be like all checking in on each other, this festivity. Again, kind of a carnivalesque type of a thing where you kind of have this um, like reversal of roles of like people going door to door, begging for food when they normally wouldn't be. I mean, it's not begging for food, but. When normally your Uber Eats driver is bringing the food to your door. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Like they did all of those many years ago. Ye old Uber Eats. So now I think it's more common like carolers, but now in like in big cities, the only time you really see carolers, they're not necessarily going door to door. You might have like choir groups that will sing in specific places. Singing on the streets. Yeah. Or I yeah. It's been a long time since I've seen carolers like going door to door. Although when I was a kid, I do remember like being a part of like yeah, like we would go caroling around like neighborhoods and stuff like that. And I do remember carolers like coming to my house. Yeah, and it would not like a ton. Yeah, I mean, but it's like I do remember it because it would normally be like like groups from like a church. Like so, it'd be like people who are friends from a church choir going over to other members of their congregations like houses. To sing or people who they kind of knew would either be home or comfortable with it or whatever. But yeah, this used to be like a thing where people would go around. So that that was wassailing, but wassailing to the apple trees is a similar thing, except that you have people who are 
like they are dressing up, they're getting the wassail and it is a ceremony that they're doing. Now, some people who still do it, they'll do it in these like bigger groups to make it more of a community event. But it would kind of be like a family thing where you would go to the oldest tree on your property and you would sing or say like the the rhyme that was in that story that you shared and they would dip a piece of bread into the wassail they would put it on the branches of the tree and then pour <laughs> pour some cider out for the homies pour some cider around like the roots of the tree and that was to give an offering to this nature spirit, the oldest nature spirit that resided on the property, so that in the next year you would have this kind of spell of fertility like over your land. Because like this winter time, especially around solstice, when you want the sun to come back and you want it to get warm again so that you can replant, you're making plans for the next year. You're starting to like prep the idea of like, okay, What's the next you're going to hold? How do I guarantee the most luck? I'm going to go wassailing to my apple tree. And again, apples with this relationship with like divination and like the mm-hmm. future, you're like doing this thing. And I also thought it was interesting in this tale with apples and divination that this man came to the tree, not to ask the tree where treasure was, but the tree was like, hey, since we're friends, since you helped me out by like taking care of me all year, removing the parasitic plants on me, and then you even remembered the tradition of like coming out and you know paying respect to me with this wassail. I'm gonna tell you a little bit of a secret where I've got some treasure stashed. And so I, I love that story for like all of the cultural knowledge that it had like inside of yeah. it. There's something kind of interesting too about like the, a tradition of like with it being the apple cider, you're taking apple cider to the apple. Like it's like this whole like circular yeah. thing to like make it go again. And it's like, there's something like really nice about that, obviously. But I'm thinking it's one of those things where in like our modern society, I feel like so disconnected from those kind of like cyc- cyclical kinds of things, yeah. you know, I'm like, what would be like the, an equivalent of that? Like what's a way that we could like, you know, pay respects in some sort of like ritual way to like the thing that, that gives us like our livelihood or sustenance like that. I'm like, maybe this Christmas season, what I should do is, you know, put a pair of headphones on my microphone and make it listen to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's like the same kind of energy. Yes. You know what I mean? It's like, here, like you've put in so much work recording my voice. Like you should get to enjoy some of like the final yeah, outcome. Yeah, like here's, as well, here's, you know? here's what the podcast sounds like in case you're interested microphone here's what it sounds like edited and 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 the quality fixed up like you worked so hard microphone to help us accomplish this goal we should make your microphone yeah. watched our spotify wrapped yeah. <laughs> you'd get a kick out of that i love that anyway but it is a really cool story. It is like beautiful. And it's another one of those that kind of like strikes me in a way that it's, I think it's also a lot of it in the way that it's written. Mm-hmm. It's like written very well to like, I could see it as a movie, like a short film of this, like that scene with the guy, like wassailing, like in the pouring rain and like barely strong enough to like get the last little yeah. bit out of it. And he's just like sitting there kind of like defeated at the end. And then 
the old apple tree man comes to life and you know in a christmas eve miracle i just love it it is a beautiful tale so the last story that i am going to share today is the tale of why the evergreens stay green i forgot the actual like scientific reason I was going to say it, but then I was like, I don't know. Why do they? Maybe we'll learn. Maybe we'll learn. So this, this little tale is sometimes attributed to the Cherokee Nation. But I have not been able to find a, like a solid source on that. And... Something that tends to happen when there is a pourquoi tale from America and people don't know the, from like, like the United States region of America, when they can't kind of trace it back to anything, they'll, they'll say that it is a Native American tale because, oh, it's attached Mm -hmm. to the land and it's from a long time ago. So this must be a tale that came from native Americans, even though no, it can very much have come from just like a person trying to claim that the tale is old or than it is. Mm-hmm. So this tale is from the American continent, but from who it's unclear. And I really like this story just because I think it is, it's a sweet, it's a sweet story. So a long time ago, winter was coming to the land and there was a little bird that along with all of its little bird friends knew that it needed to fly south to escape the cold biting north wind. And so as it was flying south with all of its friends, it accidentally hurt its shoulder, much like our friend Jeff here today. No. Oh, man. (laughs) Relatable. (laughs) So this little bird, some of his friends waited with him to see if he would get better, but his wing just would not work and he could not fly. And finally, his friends had to abandon him so that they could escape the cold winter, which, you know, nature is harsh. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a bird-eat-bird world out there. No, nobody ate that. No bird cannibalism in this story. But anyway, it's pretty tough out there for this little bird. So this bird, shivering in the cold, went from tree to tree asking if he could take shelter for the winter. And at first, the little bird went to the oak tree and asked if it could find safe haven within its branches. And the oak refused saying that he was worried that the bird would spend all winter eating his acorns and that he wouldn't be able to grow any new trees in the coming year, which, yeah, that's, I mean, kind of legit. So (laughs) that's fair. So the Oak was like, no, the weeping willow said, no, all of these different trees were turning away this little bird and wouldn't give it any shelter. So a spruce that was nearby saw this little bird and it said, oh, well, you could climb into my branches. I'll hold you with my biggest, bushiest branch 
And the bird, you know, hopped into one of like the low branches of the spruce and was able to huddle close to the tree while the north wind blew through the trees. And pretty soon the juniper, seeing the kindness of the spruce, offered the little bird shelter in its branches so that it could eat some juniper berries while it waited for winter to end. And so the little bird hopped over into the juniper and ate some of the berries that were inside the juniper and the north wind blew past and the bird was fine. And then the pine tree asked the little bird if it wanted to seek some shelter in its leaves as well. And so between the three of them, this little bird spent the winter while the north wind blew through it. And when the north wind saw how kind and generous and caring the spruce, the juniper, and the pine were to this little bird, the north wind had its heart softened by the act of kindness that they were showing, but its wrath was turned on all the other trees who refused to show an ounce of kindness. And the north wind blew and blew until all of their leaves were gone and they were bare and naked every winter since. And that is how the evergreens stayed evergreen. Just like I remember from science. (laughs) So I love that story. And that story is an introduction to our next project that we are going to be tackling (gasps) next year. I'm excited. We're going to finally be doing some Pourquoi Tales and diving deep into that subject. So I'm really, really excited. So we want to wish everybody a happy holiday season. We hope you're able to Stay safe and warm inside of your homes, unless you are on the Southern Hemisphere, in which case... And we hope you can stay safe and cool inside or outside of your homes. Indeed. Stay cool. Hopefully you guys enjoyed these little tales about plants and traditions. I love how much nature is inside of so many of the tales that we have. And like Jeff said, I, like there are times where we feel a little bit more like disconnected from the natural world and like, oh, how do I how do I give cider back to <laughs> the apple trees when I don't have access to apple trees? So hopefully just hearing the tales of nature and how we got some of these stories will help you feel a little more connected to the nature around you. And this is not our last episode of the season, but hopefully you can enjoy this one until our next episode. And then we'll see you next year. (laughs) So us at the fairy tellers wish you and yours a happy holiday season, no matter what you're doing, whether it is a quiet Christmas with some birds or a sexy Saturnalia. We hope that all of you stay safe and stay warm or cool, depending on your flavor. Happy holidays. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. 
Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inch for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar. My daughter was like, are we all lizard people because we eat deviled eggs?